0: Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Thayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Jun Do Cohen about his latest book, The Zen Master's Dance, A Guide to Understanding Dogen and Who You Are in the Universe. In The Zen Master's Dance, Jundo Cohen takes us deep into the mind of Master Dogen, and shows us how to join in the great and intimate dance of the universe. Through fresh translations and sparkling teaching, Cohen opens up for us a new way to read one of Buddhism's most remarkable spiritual geniuses. In addition to his book, we discuss at length the benefits and opportunities in maintaining a largely online Sangha tradition. Joondho Cohen is a Zen teacher and founder of the Tree Leaf Zendo, a Soto Zen community using visual media to link Zen practitioners around the world. Tree Leaf serves those who cannot easily commute to a Zen center due to health reasons, age or disability, living in remote areas or work, child care or family needs, and provides Zazen sittings, retreats, discussions, interaction with the teacher and all the other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online without thought of location or distance. Jundo was born and raised in the United States, but has lived in Japan for more than half his life. He was ordained and subsequently received Dharma transmission from Master Gudo Wafu Nishijima and is a member of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association. Jundo Cohen, welcome to the Mystical Positivist.
1: Hi, Stuart. Hi, Rob. Thank you for having me here.
2: It's our pleasure, and I will begin with our our first time guest question um, and that is prefaced by inviting you to cast your mind back to youth and childhood and in so doing, um, do any experiences impressions etc arise that you could say in retrospect um, would have prefigured a Uh, podcast where you are discussing the Zen master's dance, your work um, as a Zen teacher, etc.
1: Yeah, I had a very strange knack about nine years old of trying to figure out and explain to people theories about why the world is the way it is. And most of them, I wish I had a recording or had written them down somewhere because most of them were just cockamamie theories. I remember I once kept a tape recorder by the bed because I have these great thoughts when I was falling asleep. And I thought I'd wake up and I put in the tape recorder and listen to it to the next day. So I I, I remember one day, finally, I figured out something really great. And I grabbed the, the little tape recorder and I spoke into it and set it all out. And I put it down. And the next morning I got up and I remembered it and I played it and I pushed play. And all I heard was, it was completely unintelligible, but I know I came up with some great idea, but uh, uh, That's funny. How young, uh, how young do you, you consider youth? Because uh, I got into uh, Zen really when I was in law school years ago.
2: Well, um, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to go with that. So uh, advanced youth, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I, I, I describe uh, myself at the time as uh, horribly depressed, uh, overweight, chain smoking, uh, driving a red sports car. Uh, did I mention depressed, really yes. depressed <laughs> and uh, confused? And uh, when you're in law school, you know, um, people tell you to argue, everyone's obsessed with money and career and uh, you can fight about, it. They they teach you to fight about anything. You know, I can I could tell you that the sun comes up in the west. I, I can if if you're paying me, I could tell you that. You know. So one day uh someone at the university uh said there's a Zen group and uh they said, Come here, sit on this cushion and put that all down. Put down all the argumentation and all the worry about where you're gonna go in life. And it was clear to me instantly how valuable that is and in some ways much more than anything they ever taught me in law school. So that's, uh, where I got started on the Zen path.
2: Got it. What, uh, was that, um, in the United States or, uh, or whereabouts? Yeah,
1: right. right. I went to Duke, uh, and everybody, uh, was in a hurry to get to wall street. And the professor said, uh, we need someone to go to China because uh, China was just opening it at the time. This was like 1984. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I said, uh, "Oh, I'll go." <laughs> and and the, the dean, who who knew I was not quite into the law school scene, said, "Anybody but you." But nobody else wanted to go. Everybody wanted to to rush off, you know, to, to their careers. So I ended up uh, being the the delegate to the People's University in Beijing. Hmm. And uh, when I was there, uh, the uh, a lot of the Chinese clergy were just coming back from the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them had been uh, made into farmers. They'd been defrocked, you know, right. and they were trying to reclaim their temple. So uh, I met this uh, fellow and my Chinese was terrible. I'm still not sure what he was teaching me, but uh, he was trying to reclaim his temple that had been turned into some kind of warehouse or something. And he taught me to to, to sit zazen, I think, <laughs> or maybe he just taught me <laughs> sit down and be quiet, something like that. He said, sit over there. So uh, that was uh, my first start.
2: Wow. That's a um uh so so how long did that did did you as you, as you're putting it in quotations almost study with this guy and and what did you get out of it?
1: Uh I uh, you know to tell you I was I was in China about a year and uh I don't know what I got out of it and I don't even know his name. <laughs> It's terrible, and I went there, you know, week after week, and he had mm-hmm. this heavy Beijing accent. So I know I asked him his name, and his response was Reverend. So I just call him. I, 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 to this day, I light incense and I say thank you to him, Reverend Er, because I have no idea who he was.
2: <laughs> that's that's pretty funny. That's the that's the first no name. Uh, uh, <laughs> buddhist teacher i've heard of so <laughs> that's pretty well,
1: cool it shows you how bad my chinese was
2: <laughs> got it all right so you're in uh, china for a year how did you get to japan eventually because i believe of course you're speaking to us from japan so uh well, what how what was that trajectory
1: i uh, eventually went back to uh, miami this was in the miami vice days you know <laughs> uh, when miami was you know, everyone. Driving around doing nefarious deals, and I was—I was not a, a that kind of lawyer. I was a very conservative real estate lawyer, hmm. but uh, my job was to convince my clients to uh, keep the disputes going. Uh, money is important, and uh, the best thing to do is is to fight with the other guy, anything it takes to win. <laughs> I was with a pretty big firm, and I. Kind of already was influenced by Buddhism, so I was trying to tell uh, you know the client well you don 't need to fight so much, and you know actually money's not that important, <laughs> and uh, it didn 't make me a very good lawyer. I, I, I was recommending mediation and meditation instead of litigation, yeah. and my boss uh, quickly said, uh, "Any chance you want to go back to China <laughs> so uh, what happened was actually, I met my uh, wife uh, who 's Japanese and we've been uh, together uh, now 30 years and uh, one day she said oh i know some uh foreigners are going to japan and uh oh suddenly a light went off and so uh what is it 31 years ago uh i came to japan speaking very well let's just say no japanese to speak of and uh Started uh, from there and just stayed, and I've been here ever since. So, right now I'm a translator. I, I do um, general translations, but I also do uh, a little bit of Buddhist translations. And I am uh, in Scuba, Japan. Uh, which where is, where is like, that in Japan? I like to describe us as uh, right between Tokyo and Fukushima. We are 100 miles from Fukushima, okay. which uh, made a, a very exciting time. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, 10 years ago when we didn't know if we could come back to this house, uh, we had to run uh, uh, for a while, uh, but we came back. We still have hot spots around the house. They, the, the video rental store here at the mm-hmm. time, would, you could check out, there was no electricity, but when the electricity came back on, you could check out a, a movie and a Geiger counter. At the, oh video, at the video, at the video rental store. So everyone was getting their movies and their guide <laughs> counter and going around their house. And you would find the, the little, uh, radioactive uh, hotspots. But, uh, as far as I know, it is safe to be here. And, mm-hmm. uh, so we've been here, uh, ever since.
2: And, uh, so I will want to get into your, uh, uh, work with your sangha, uh, uh later in the discussion, but, but, um, I think I understand from looking at your website that um, you actually have a temple that you uh, uh, work at. Is that, is that correct? Or do I, am I misunderstanding No, no, that?
1: no, 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 I got a farmhouse.
2: Mm. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, we're,
1: that makes- we're, we're kind of in the country here. And I decided that uh, I was going to do what a lot of uh, American Zen centers do, which is either put the Zen group in the living room or in the barn and we found this old farm uh, house that has a barn. And uh, we built a pretty traditional uh, zendo in there, made of uh, pine. And uh, mm. and uh, we got uh, the birds, the, the starlings build nests in there. And uh, we got the occasional snake that crawls through. We're really out in the country here. Mm. And uh, that's uh, where we have uh, Zazen every uh, Saturday. But most of our activity uh, is online, which we'll talk about in yeah. a bit. Yes.
0: Right. But but yeah, before we uh, go in that direction, though, your 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 practice, you you worked with Nishishima uh, uh, sensei, right? Right. Uh, And and
2: how. How did that come
0: about? How how did that come about? And was that uh, shortly after you moved to Japan or was there a period of settling in before you encountered him?
1: Well, when the foreigners come to Japan, it's surprising. There are actually very few options for foreigners to practice here. You would think that there would be Zen on every corner, but it's just not like that. Especially if you you had the language limitation, like I I did for my first 10 years of the 30 here. Mm -hmm. And uh, Nishijima Roshi uh, at the time was uh, running... a, a zendo with a dormitory and one of the most wonderful programs for foreigners who are interested in zen who came to japan and he's a an interesting fellow he he uh was a, a working man and a father for most of his life who translated uh dogen the famous uh, soto uh teacher uh but uh, he decided at 50 uh that uh he wanted to be ordained and uh uh, he also decided to be celibate which i that's a funny story with his wife apparently he went to his wife at the age of 52 and said uh, i'd like to be a priest now and i we've had our daughter and i'd like to be celibate and she looked at him he didn't mean this to be funny but she kind of said yeah go ahead it's no big no big deal but uh uh, he uh from that time he devoted his entire life until he passed away at uh, age 93 uh, oh, wow. To uh, welcoming foreigners and teaching them Soto Zen, so that's uh, I, he was one of the people I began to sit with when I came here.
2: Well, I get, I've gotten the impression when I've read about Nishijima Roshi that um, he's, he was kind of considered a rebel uh, in yes. Japan, and um, and I suppose teaching foreigners would be one aspect of that rebelliousness, perhaps. Or you couldn't confirm that, but but I'm wondering what other aspects. Uh, would fit in with that, uh, um, <laughs> I'll call it honorific.
1: Yeah, he he was a, a rebel for a few reasons. The thing about foreigners is, is right, uh, because he thought that Zen and Buddhism in general in Japan had become a kind of a funeral culture, as he mm. put it. Uh, you mm. know, they're very focused on ancestors and uh, doing funerals and memorial services for the deceased, and basically temples that have parishioners attached. And it's not about Zazen. So he thought the future and the vibrancy of Buddhism might actually be overseas and then come back to Japan, mm. which I guess, mm. I guess that accidentally that turned out to be me. So I've come back to Japan to bring Zen back to Japan. So far it hasn't worked. Uh, <laughs> <here. No. laughs> Except for the three people who come to sit in our barn here, but uh, uh, but he was very much about uh, zazen and uh, zazen and uh, the precepts and zazen. So uh, he was hoping that uh, Soto Zen would uh, get back away from the funerals and back to uh, zazen practice. So that was his big.
0: Thing. And you know, it's interesting to us because we—you uh, probably saw in our archive—we had Brad Warner on the show at yeah. uh, one point, and what and I really
2: student of initiative right?
0: And and. What I really, what I got from him and, and reading your book is just this uh, abiding love of Dogen that uh, Nishijima yes. uh, uh, really imparted uh, that it's it's like like the work that you're doing and uh, some of the work that Brad was doing to me is like making Dogen relevant to modern audiences. And it seemed exactly. like, it, and that was, seemed like what is one of the things that he seemed to be about. And I, I, Appreciated these two very different views, but they all sort of had the same source, and that source was this guy who looked at uh, Soto Zen and Sado Dogen as the guy, and that was his dedication and that was his focus.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, by the way, Brad, let me say I'm—I uh, sometimes describe myself as. Uh, Brad's less exciting Dharma brother. <laughs> he's actually only a couple of years younger than me, but he's still, he's like Dick Clark. Remember Dick Clark? He he still looks 30 years old. I, on the other hand, I, I just turned 60 this year and I look like the, the wise old man in the mountains.
0: <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's funny. We were talking to a, a friend of ours today who's a, a long, long-term Zen practitioner and now a Quaker. And uh, he uh, we mentioned, we were talking to you today and we mentioned Brad Warner and he said, yeah, I think Brad's 41. And I said, I don't think that's right. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so, but, but uh, 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 yeah. So, the, but the, the, that, that, that focus on Dogen was, uh, uh, really striking to me. So I, I guess, I, I guess I'm interested, you know, having sat with Nishijima and, uh, where, what was the trajectory to for you to have your own temple and uh, begin to open a sangha?
1: Right. Well. Um, well, if, you know, the, first of all, the thing about Dogen is most Japanese don't read or understand Dogen mm-hmm. because uh, it's in uh, it's like the equivalent of reading Chaucer, Middle English. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's. It's uh, difficult to read Japanese of that period. And, and Dogen himself is just wild. We're going to talk about Dogen, but he's right, just a wild right. style. So I um, always uh, loved Dogen, and I'm trying to figure out Dogen, and I'm trying to sit with Dogen, and Nishijima uh, Nishijima's teaching Dogen. So I started going to his uh, classes back in uh, when I first came to Japan about 1989. And he's lecturing in English on Dogen, and uh, I'm still not <laughs> understanding Dogen uh nishijima seems to understand dogen but i can't uh, claim that so um that continued plus i went to there, there were some other zen groups here uh which i, I struggle with the language can i tell you one funny language story yeah, please okay so i'm going to sojiji which is the big soto temple here and there's a lovely teacher azuma roshi who's my first real japanese zen master I never mm-hmm. met a real and I thought he was a completely enlightened being, so everything he says and does has to mean something, so he's struggling with his English to try to make me understand, and i'm getting you know every tenth word he's saying'm I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand so i I have the big question so one day after zazen i went to to Roshi and I said, Azama Roshi, what is time, please?' What is the miss? What is time? And he looked at me and he said, time now, 530.
2: I can see that coming. I said, "Ah, ah,
1: you mean time is now. Now this moment is the universe, 530. And he looked at his watch and he said, no, no. Time now, 5.30. <laughs> so uh, that's, a, that's a good example of how people sometimes when they come to, if I may say, Asian teachers, because of the language barrier, we have a tendency to think that everything they say must mean something profound. And sometimes it's not just the, frankly, the English is not so good, or the Japanese is not so good. So there's a lot of misunderstandings here. But Azuma Roshi was a dear, dear man.
2: So you were um so, so let me see if i understand the context you you get to japan with with your wife um yeah and um you're studying with azuma roshi first and then later i guess found uh, nishijima roshi is that is that right
1: actually kind of at the same time because nishijima roshi was one of the few uh things going on in english for zen people i see okay uh, there, there was another wonderful teacher jiho Sargent, who i just want to mention because she left this world of many years ago but uh she was incredible here in japan but uh, jiho Sargent and nishijima roshi was that's the only game in town for zen if you were a foreigner in japan uh all those years and even today there's so little it's it's such a shame
2: got it so um and i'm going to pick up stewart uh, uh uh where Stuart's question um was not yet answered because i want to know how you ended up creating your own uh sangha essentially i mean i think right. that's I, th- well, I think that's an interesting thing for for someone to do in J- for a foreigner to do in japan it seems to me right right and for well, other reasons i guess
1: After I've been practicing about 20 years, I can't remember if the Nishijima suggested it or I suggested it. Or uh, I was going back to the states, and someone said, "I'd like to have a Zen group." And oh, Nishijima said, "Okay, you go back to America, take my uh, Dharma with you, and you be my uh, teacher." And I said, OK. And Nishijima was trying to eliminate the border between lay and priest. He he thought mm-hmm. that he, this was another area where he was on the edge because he said the traditional sangha is male and female, priest and lay. This has been for two thousand five hundred years. And he's, he said, you know, we've jumped past the male and female thing now. We don't say that the women in America have to sit behind the men even ordained or not ordained. And he was also the working man who said that uh, you you can be working and this is your place of practice. So he was trying to really fuzz the borderline. And you can see with Brad too, who puts on robes sometimes, but doesn't really, we don't really have the aura of a priest. So he was saying, well, you just go to America. And I said, well, you know, if I go there, they're not going to understand this. So maybe I should ordain. And so we did it. Uh, how does I like to say the kosher way? <laughs> we, we, yeah. we actually had to have two ceremonies because first he ordained me and then he wanted to register me with Sotoshu. And they have all these requirements. So we had two ord- ordinations uh, because they're, they're, they have that witnesses and paper stamped. And so we had two ordination ceremonies. And uh, he he sent me back to America as uh, a teacher, and that's how that's how it started. And the way my sangha uh, got started is when I went to America, I I knew very little about how to run a Western sangha because I'd never been involved in one, and I had uh, a couple of American <laughs> priests who took me under wing and showed me what to do. But we realized very fast uh, being in Florida that people leave the Sangha either because they become sick or elderly and they can't drive and they can't get there anymore. And that yeah. is when the idea for an online Sangha uh, began, okay. which is principally what my Sangha is now. I have the three people who come sit in my barn here, but we have about 30 to some really a couple of hundred people who are generally active and and. Uh, in our sangha now. And, uh, that's where the idea came from for that.
2: So, so, um, so do you give Dharma talks online in the same way that I understand, you know, uh, uh Zen, Zen and other Buddhist teachers give Dharma talks here in the U S is it sort of like that or, or how does it work?
1: This is the thing. And this is a really, a. I was just talking about this yesterday with one of our priests. I don't understand why we remain so different. Can I get on my soapbox now?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. All right. So 16 years ago, we go online for the first time when the technology was not like here. I'm talking to you on Zoom, and this is amazing. The technology was really hit and miss. I like to say we had our first Jukai precept ceremony. Uh, about 14 years ago online. And uh, first off, that was incredibly controversial. You cannot give the precepts online because you have to be in the same room with someone. You have to be, and I. we'll we'll talk about that later. But I said, no, no, I'm looking them in the face. I know these people. They're, They're as dedicated as anyone. So we had the ceremony, but the technology was so bad that it kept cutting in and out. So my joke is that, we gave 16 precepts, but nobody got more than eight of them. <laughs> so we had to go back later and kind of do it again and fix it because one guy he could steal, but he couldn't kill the other guy. It was okay for him to kill, but he couldn't steal. So we had that. We had to fix the precepts. But uh, 16 years ago, when we started, people said, no, you can't do this. You, it's just wrong. And we got so much heat, and then of course uh, for for not the best of reasons, this past year, everybody and their and their brother now is online mm-hmm. and uh, suddenly uh, people uh, realize that uh, hey it's it serves some purposes, uh, but we still get heat because we 're too far out there in some ways, and that 's the thing. People give talks online, yeah or people have a sitting online, but they are not bringing. The full sangha experience as much as possible online, and that is what we have tried to do. For example, we have online sewing circles. We I wear a rocksu here, which is the little robe
2: for mm-hmm.
1: a jukai, and people sew the robe. But we have sewing circles that meet, and people sew together. We've had, uh, of course, a tonglen is a Buddhist practice, a Tibetan practice that's been come Mm-hmm. very popular even in uh, zen groups we have people who meet for tonglen now <laughs> we have uh, all kinds of activities anything we even have cookie and tea time anything you could do in a sangha you can try to do as close as possible online and nobody as far as i know is going whole, whole hog with it right they're just putting the talks online or they're having the sittings and it's not enough to really bring your people in. That's, that's okay. I'll get off my soapbox. Well,
0: no, I mean, no, it's, okay. it's, a, it's an interesting topic. I mean, when we've talked with folks about obviously the experience in the last year where uh, uh, Zoom has suddenly become uh, so instrumental for connecting people, but uh, lots of communities have noticed that when they do things through Zoom, that suddenly the people who did fall away because they moved away or they, you know, they, they got very busy with their lives suddenly can reconnect. And so there's this phenomenon of sanghas and spiritual communities getting bigger. And mm-hmm. that's something that's, uh, I think been a positive when we've talked to people who've been engaged in meditation practice, and this is a que- really, i mentioned your experience with this, they will describe that it's different than sitting together in a room
1: and it's mm-hmm. different
0: than sitting alone. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. and so it's like a third category that it's, it's, it's real. There is a sense of connection. It's not the same as being physically present with people, but it is a something.
1: And that's good
0: mm-hmm.
1: in some ways. Now, now, I listened to an interview you did with Hokai Sobol who mm-hmm. I, I love. He's he's wonderful. And it was a little bit focused on the difficulties with online. And I was I was wagging my finger at the at the at your <laughs> podcast here saying I got to get on here and I got to give the other perspective because mm-hmm. Zoom or any online technology is a tool and it actually has its strengths. Things that are easier to do on Zoom, for example, that you may not be able to do so easily in in person. Mm -hmm. So, would you want me to start talking about that? Just go get yourself a coffee for twenty minutes.
2: Well, (laughs) you know, we were gonna we were gonna get into your book first, but you know, you've got a head of steam going here, so 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 let's go into it. Why not? Why not? Because I'm I'm I think it's a very interesting topic and and one that deserves wider you know. uh, discussion
1: okay well i'm going to say that first off i'm a teacher of shikantaza just sitting mm-hmm. and it may lend itself to certain types of practice more than others so i i'm i'm going to get to that but uh, i want to say that at the outset here's the the main strength of the online the world is virtual through the skandhas mm-hmm. entering through the senses created as a model in the brain. In other words, people don't realize that this place we're sitting, like your office where I see you're sitting now with those books behind you and your friend next to you, this is also a virtual image that you are seeing somewhere in the white matter of your brain in the visual cortex. If you want to teach the basic lesson of buddhism that all things are empty and all or much of it is mind created then this is just one more i don't want to say layer it's just one more example of what the eye is already doing the eye is a camera photons are entering the eye you are only seeing an electrochemical signal right now, that you think are things and people and objects and your emotions and reactions to them. So, if you look at Zoom, it truly is just that, but extended electronically. Now, the other thing is, as I said, I'm a Shikantaza teacher, and Shikantaza is about sitting radically as what is with all the frustrations of life things we find difficult or we don't like so for example if i'm sitting and uh, there's uh, some noise outside in my zendo and i don't like the noise because it's disturbing my meditation i teach my students no 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 the noise is just the noise your reaction is again happening between the ears I I like to say that uh, we're here next to a military base. And uh, sometimes uh, our folks are sitting in the Zendo and the birds are chirping. It's a beautiful spring day. And, oh, it's so Zen. It's so lovely. And then a helicopter from the military base flies over. Very noisy. People say, no, it's disturbing my Zen. And I say, no, 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 no. For the Zen person, birds are singing as birds. Helicopters are singing as helicopters. They just are what they are. So if you're reacting to the Zoom that it's not real, it's bothering me, I feel alienated by it, I'm feeling distance, that's you feeling these things. You don't have to. You can drop away the resistance. You can drop away your Feeling that I wish this was better. It would be better if I was in a live group. That's you judging what's better. Mm-hmm. And it's a basic Buddhist lesson to stop judging good and bad. Sit with what is. So sitting on Zoom, if people say, I feel distance. I say, you know what we even judge, drop in, in Zen? Feelings of here and there. Oh, but I'm watching a recording that was made three days ago. No we also drop thoughts of past, present, and future. When you're sitting on your Zafu cushion, we say that all the Buddhas and ancestors from a million years ago, endless kalpa, are sitting there with you. And if they can be sitting there with you, you can be sitting with someone in Paris or in Cleveland, Ohio, three days ago. Just forget about the distance and the separation and the barrier that you're creating between you and them. So if you... Teach the right attitude it is a great Buddhist lesson that's what I wanted to say
2: well i and I appreciate it because uh, it also um, is something you touch on in your book zen master's dance it, i mean this you bring up this i think entirely valid point that the the scientists of neurobiology um, are um, very clear that the brain, the, the human brain, the, the gray matter that you're pointing to between the ears, is interpreting data sent um, through the neurons, et cetera, um, to the from the eyes, from the ears, all the senses, the body. And so it's true that the tactile, there's not a tactile presence of the same uh, form, but but you're absolutely right that, that, that there is um, a basic similarity. And to forget that does mean – I mean, I'm, I'm really glad you've brought this up because I, um, I hadn't thought about it this way as applied to practice. It's really, I have, really uh, important.
1: I, I have had conversations with a couple of our members who are uh, visually and hearing disabled. Were mm. mm. impaired, yeah, and uh, one of them said, "Oh, welcome to my world. I just function in a world where I rely on all my other senses, so you 're right i can 't uh, go out and, and give you a kiss i wouldn 't do that these days anyway, but
2: <laughs> right.
1: you are right there are There are some limitations, but it just causes us to rely on other things, like the famous visually impaired swordsman." You know that's a Japanese yeah. mythology. Yeah. You just re- rely on your other, your other senses, and it opens as much as it closes.
0: So if there's you're,
1: no, if you're looking closely,
0: there's mm-hmm. no necessary separation, or there's no. I mean, the separation isn't. Um, Is only apparent,
2: or and, and it arises out of the judgment right. that's happening um, in your head.
0: I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, that 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 that, because any any statement to the contrary is really putting conditions on on the transmission and there can't be any conditions on that.
1: Well, we we talk about the Buddha and Dogen. And of course, uh, we haven't met them personally, but they are vibrant and alive for us. Uh, I like to say I have a a boy in um, my house here who's 18 and a teenager. And what's going on in his head is a complete mystery to me and he's in the same house. (laughs) So what we found in our Sangha over the years is if people come consistently day in, day out, uh, and this is another thing about Sangha, a lot of Buddhist groups, you can only come or most people come unless it's a real residential community. Once a week, a couple hours, people come, how are you doing? Sit silently, listen passively to a talk, maybe have a little chat with coffee and tea, right? And then they go home. But our group people can come. They can come daily. They can, uh, I'm, I'm going to say this too, pour themselves out some ways because of the media that they couldn't do in person. Remind me to talk about that. I, I'll tell you a couple of stories about that. But because of that, with time, you truly get to know people because they're just there day in, day out through their cancers, through their divorces, through their depressions, through their happy times and uh, sad times. You get to know people. And and uh, I have had uh, people in our group who I have eventually met. I did a train tour around America a couple of times where I just go to people's houses that that I knew from our group. And I couldn't remember if I'd met them before or not. Uh, because I'd known them for so long, Uh, sometimes they were shorter or taller than I had imagined. Because you don't get that on the screen, but otherwise, uh, they were just the folks I knew. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing I said about opening up this is another strength of our basically forum based community. Here's the thing because we are distant, people will have enough space to open up about things that sometimes they won't tell their own spouse. Hmm. Now, we, we we insist on certain confidentiality because it is the Internet. So I say people don't say that your name is Tom at the such and such hospital and you're an alcoholic doctor. Say I'm a medical professional somewhere in the South and I'm an alcoholic doctor. Don't give too much <laughs> personal. But if you do maintain certain levels of privacy, people will tell you things and open up and uh, and the written word is an art we've lost. We're basically a written forum. People post things, but it's like letter writing. I'm giving this interview now and I'm speaking very uh, quickly off the top of my head. I'm going to have to listen later. Hopefully I'm not putting my foot in my mouth too badly today. Uh, But if I had time really to compose something meaningful, either like a book or an essay or a letter there are things you say there that you don't say in conversational speech and a written form can be conducive to allowing people to do that. In some ways, it's richer than face to face. OK, I'm, I got I got back on oh, my soapbox well, for yeah, a second. I'm getting off again.
2: That's OK. Uh, I mean, so so what you've, um, you know, uh, what you've just said reminds me of some of the forms that I've seen in in other spiritual communities we had. A friend, uh, Lee Laswick, who uh, a quite you know moderately large uh, spiritual community. One of the important things that um, ways of interacting that he had of interacting with um, people. He had you know, he had an ashram in Arizona where 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 a certain number of people lived and nearby, but then there were people scattered you know around the country and the world, and. And so he would, I know, write, receive and write letters to students individually. And then some of those letters, I guess, with permission, would be included in their journal, you know, in their periodical.
0: He would also have people, though, write personal notebooks as well, because writing was very important.
2: Writing was very, impor- very
0: important to in him. In fact, if you don't write about it, it doesn't exist, is what he would tell people.
2: Yeah. 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 So anyway, so 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 this is very – Intriguing to me, because um, at first you were talking about, you know, sitting, sitting together online in a sewing circle or, or other, other formats like that. And now I'm hearing this other dimension um, about sharing whatever, whatever, it yeah. 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 Uh, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it happens to be arising for people in their lives in a written format as well. So that's, I, a, uh, that's an interesting mix.
1: I, I, we have brought the entire sangha to sit someone with someone in their bed in the hospice in their last weeks in this world. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I had my cancer operation about three years ago, I was in the hospital for um, a few weeks, and brought the sangha in with me, and I sat from my hospital bed. And when we had the Fukushima. Uh, re- reactor exploded, and we had to f- run from here. I was kind of a refugee with the in the car trying to get to the other side of Japan. We brought the Sangha because when you 're online like this you don 't need the building so those are moments that really you, you can have all of life in some ways the The older people or the people with physical disabilities in Florida left the Sangha. And for a few weeks, people would try to drive them, pick them up, and then they just drifted away because they, they couldn't get there. Mm-hmm. And that was such a shame. There were, there were people who had been sitting Zazen in uh, retired to Florida. They'd been sitting 30, 40 years, and then they were just cut off because they were not physically capable of coming. And then uh, we discovered, well there are working people these days with kids who may have a Zen center right next door, but they can't get to it because they're working three jobs or they got to take care of the kids. So we say, sit with us. And they say, well, I still got the kids. I said, let the kids run around. Sit zen with one eye half open and the other eye open, watching the kid, <laughs> <laughs> you know, make sure they don't knock over the candle or the incense like that. But otherwise children welcome. Pets are welcome. Um, and uh, we can all sit together. So um, in some ways, for people who cannot get to a physical s- setting, of course, long before the age of COVID, it's, it was an invaluable tool.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, I appreciate that. It's it's interesting for me personally in that I I study uh, shakuhachi with a a teacher who lives – Close to me, we're in Northern I, California.
1: I I heard your 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 story about the anus muscle. Was it? I uh, thought yeah, there was. Okay. I, I I didn't know that. Uh, no, we cannot do that online. I don't even know how you can do that in person. But well, but
0: but what well, was interesting, and the point I wanted to make, I probably have made that in other conversations, is that I'm doing a lot of lessons with them by Zoom now, and there is, it works. It 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 uh there he's able to transmit through that medium, and it's good enough to hear, but something else is going on too, because he's using senses that are go beyond the technology in order to you know just grok what state I'm in and yeah. and I think that with like what you're describing there once you have the connection, you know there's a lot of other things that are brought to bear that aren't just technology. That allow us to be connected, and
1: we, we let's admit there are certain things you can't do with Zoom. For example, my wife and uh, my daughter—they're martial artists. My daughter's in karate, and my wife mm-hmm. is in aikido. And when COVID happened, they all went online, and it's kind of a disaster. You cannot <laughs> teach—you cannot really teach karate over the, the Zoom. So yeah, certain yeah, yeah, types yeah, of Buddhist yeah. practice, too, it's not con- conducive. I'm just very fortunate that in the Shikantaza just sitting, it tends to lend itself more easily yeah, than I think uh, some types of Buddhist or
0: spiritual practice. Well, So maybe this is a good time. Well, to turn. Well, I have one
2: more question. In the, in the, in it's this not a good line. time. Go for it. <laughs> so so the, the other question is, you know, um, we alluded to the fact that a year ago when, when uh, everyone was suddenly confined to their homes... Uh, people started um, sanghas expanded online and when I say expanded of course it was people who had not been connected for a while um, just along the lines you've been you've been pointing to and they came back and they uh, the uh, participation expanded uh, yeah. to include people previously associated with the Sangha but um, we were listening to and speaking with fr- friends who are teachers not in a podcast but in a, in a in another zoom conversation as zoom conversations proliferated over the last year and um and one point that some people made and and i think it's and i want to get your reaction to it is that it really helped the intimacy through zoom if People had already had physical acquaintance. That is to say, had had been in the same room at one point. And and because you've had a mix, it sounds like implied in, in one of the, one of the statements you made. Um, I'm wondering if you have a perspective on this.
1: Time heals all wounds. So it may be true that uh, it would be good. If if and it's just it's just physically impossible. I have people sitting with us in Ukraine and Finland Mm. and Mm. I'm not getting there. And they're not coming here even so so much even in good time. And they don't have a Zen group close by. So sometimes it's just you just have to take what you can work with. Mm -hmm. But even if it's if it's true that it was it would be good for someone to meet me once in a while. Mm-hmm. I totally agree, and and I'm not never saying that our group is better or a substitute for meeting under a roof. It's important you say that. If people can do that, they should do that, and also they can do the online. It's mm-hmm. not a, a choice mm-hmm. of one or the other. But okay, if people cannot, and you've been sitting with them day in, day out, listening to, getting to know their terrible jokes and their bad uh you know their what their wife says about them they write about online or their struggle with their kids or how their their sitting is going and if that continues long enough a few after a few months you really do forget have you met them or not met them it's it's you say you can hide things online that you cannot say in person i heard the conversation with uh A Hokai Sobo. And that's a very good point. If you really want to know somebody, live in a telephone booth with them (laughs) for a few days, and you'll really find out who this person is. I totally agree with that. But you know, that doesn't mean that, for example, I've been teaching now 16 years. Do people know me? I Even my wife made some things. She doesn't know certain things about me, I, I guess. And as I said, I don't know things about her. We've been married... 30 years even living in the same house. But what do you know? Okay, you see is what you get. We haven't had a scandal in our sangha. This is a big plus.
2: (laughs) I hadn't thought about that benefit.
1: (laughs) No, it is. I mean, that that actually says a lot. If if there's trouble in the sangha, in this day of the internet, people are going to find out about it. Yeah. You're going to get people going online saying, "Oh, this guy he's a charlatan. He just wants my money. He's doing strange things in the in the interview room. Mm-hmm. You're not going to keep any secrets." So, if a teacher is I'm not saying I'm I'm the best teacher in the world. I'm saying but if you if someone is trying to say do something good and they're not causing any uh scandal, there's no shadow there the internet will kind of show that because you're not going to hear the rumors about the person and people are going to say basically good things. So if people come to our sangha and they sit for long enough, a few months and they see that we're harmless and we're really trying and that the practice is good in their lives, they're going to realize it's a wholesome thing and uh, they're going to know enough to keep on with the practice. So yes, it would be lovely to meet these people, but also time does heal a lot of wounds. Uh, well, well,
2: online. well. Thank you. This this has been um, just this part of the, our discussion today has been really uh, very very interesting to me yeah. personally. Um, you know, we have we have our own um, uh, fourth way um, uh, group that we um, mm-hmm. conduct and work with, and and. You've made me think of aspects of what we can do with these people that I hadn't thought of before. So I value that. I appreciate it.
1: Get the lesson in their heads that if they're having trouble with the media, they, their self, is having the trouble.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my advice. Okay. Thank you. So, shall we? Uh, uh, let's let's to transition the
2: to uh, the Zen Masters Dance formally. We've referred yeah. to it a few times already. but
1: Great book. Great book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: I've heard. <laughs> Has great online reviews, right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know the author. He's really good. <laughs> exactly. No scandals. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the, we were talking about this earlier, that this is a, uh, a riff on a Dogen, and I – what I appreciated about your introduction was that you, you look at Dogen and the analogies that you're using for this guy from the 13th century, um, uh, that he is doing kind of jazz riffing on uh, yeah. traditional Buddhist doctrines. And and he was a highly educated guy and was a really great writer. So what he was doing was really probably quite unusual even for that time, I imagine. But maybe, oh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe you could just uh, do a brief sketch of who Dogen was for listeners who may not be uh, quite so familiar and, and what this body of work is that you are actually responding to and doing your own version or translation of.
1: Well, Dogen was the uh, teacher in the 13th century who went to China and found the uh, Dong, the Soto uh, tradition of uh, sitting uh, came back to Japan and uh, began to teach uh, Shikantaza, which uh, means just sitting or this I like to say the sitting that hits the spot, something like that. <laughs> and uh, it's a little different from the Rinzai approach. You know, they they sit centered on the, the koan or the, the, the wato phrase. And we are just sitting. I'll t- I want to talk about what Shikantaza is in a bit too. Don't let me forget mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, he came back and he was a walking encyclopedia, highly educated in Buddhism. He'd been practicing Buddhism for uh, before he went to China since he was a kid, literally uh, for at least, uh, I think, a dozen years before he went to China and he knew his stuff. So he came back and he started writing. His main uh, most famous work is something called the Shobogenzo, which is just it's uh, James Joyce. It is, ah, it is what, it what is, a good analogy.
2: Wild.
1: Yeah, it is why it's it is not easy going. It's not easy going for Japanese people, even if besides the fact it's in seven hundred-year-old Japanese, even when it's translated into modern Japanese, the Japanese can't make head or tail of a lot of it. It's in English and in some beautiful translations. My teacher Nishijima did one of the uh, full translations of Shobo Genzo, and it's still tough going and I couldn't understand why and I read everything I could get on Dogen and there are people who are real Dogen experts and scholars some of them priests some of them in the universities and some of them try to analyze it uh, very intellectually that he meant something every sentence uh, from a philosophical perspective, and sometimes it lost me. And other people say, no, you have to be completely an enlightened being. Then this will all become clearer. And I said, well, maybe so, but I, I, I'm i not an enlightened being, so I'm, I'm, I'm still struggling for, with this. And then one day I'm in a museum reading my Dogen in front of a Picasso. <laughs> and I look at the Picasso, and I look at my Dogen, and the Picasso was, I think, a, a table with fruit. Right. And the leg from the bottom is on the side and this side of the table is over here. And the fruit is kind of, you know, it's Picasso. And I said, wait a second. That's Dogen. Dogen is trying to take the Buddhist teachings and show them from new angles. But it was, you know, it was still very stagnant. So another time I'm listening to Coltrane jazz while I'm reading my show Bogenzo. And the two started to flow into each other. And I realized that Dogen was playing riffs on Buddhism. Coltrane, the the one I love to talk about, is my favorite things. You know the Julie Andrews song? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Chestnuts and roses. <laughs> I'm not going to Okay. Wow! So First
2: Coltrane, time we've had a s- song on the sto- on the show here. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I wrote this. I wrote this book too out of guilt. My mother's a jazz singer. My my sister's oh. a Bob Fosse dancer. My uncle's a symphony conductor, and I'm the one in the family with no musical talent. So I, out of guilt, I wrote this book about dancing mm. and music. But that's uh, uh, okay. that's the Freudian analysis of why I wrote it. But anyway, uh, so Dogan is like Coltrane, who, you know, you hear Julie Andrews when you go on the YouTube and put my favorite things with John Coltrane, it'll come up. And first you hear Julie and then he's gone. He's off somewhere. He's syncopating, bending time. You don't know where he's going. Riffs, wild sounds, harmonies and disharmonies. And then Julie comes back for a moment and then he's off again. And I realize that that's John expressing his favorite things, man. Mm -hmm. You know, it is the song, but he's bringing it to life. He's exploding it. He's bringing it into new dimensions. That's what Dogen's doing. So Dogen never left the farm as a traditional Mahayana Buddhist teacher. But his way of writing was to take a theme, like all things are connected and and each other. That uh, you, you, Stuart and Rob are not two guys sitting here in a room together. Rob is another face of Stuart. And Stuart is the back of Rob's head like that. You know, this is how we (laughs) Mahayana look at uh, everything flows and is everything else. And Dogen just is doing this with his word jazz. But if you really read Dogen, you'll see that, uh, no, the themes are in there. The basic Julie Andrews of the the standard old tunes of Buddhism are in there. But Dogen is just blowing it out. And... uh, you don't read Dogan to understand every line because I, I say something sacri- sacrilegious. I don't think Dogan meant intellectually uh, by anything by a lot of what he wrote, but he absolutely meant what he was feeling. Mm-hmm. Like Coltrane, if you said, what does Coltrane mean by that note or that musical phrase? What is he intellectually trying to convey by that A minor? <laughs> Nothing. It's a sound. It's a feeling. And that's what Dogen was doing. So now people don't have to buy my book because I told them. Well, I think,
0: yeah. (laughs) Uh, We'll
2: we'll, we'll, well, we'll try to entice them a little further. Well, for one thing,
0: I'll say that one of the things you do nicely in the book is that as you translate and then interleave your commentary in elements of Dogen, you are pointing out the uh My Favorite Things uh lyrics or the sound, you know, you're, you're basically pointing out certain of the things that he's riffing on, which are traditional yeah. Buddhist uh, uh stories, forms, koans, and things like that. And for someone who's coming to that material for the first time, that's actually very helpful because you don't necessarily, you know, sometimes this stuff just looks like crazy talk. uh And then you kind of point out that, you know, the whisk or the, you know, uh, is something that figures in a traditional context, and people would understand what that meant. So, someone familiar with Buddhism and the uh, the, uh, the sutras would actually be able to understand that these elements are being used in an unusual way. So, th- yeah. so that 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 is that's actually one element of the book that is very helpful because you you set the you set the table for a reader who doesn't have that. Deeper context of the traditional Buddhist uh, material. Yeah, uh,
2: so let me just jump in here, though, with a question about that—that's arisen in my head because of this. So you point out in, in the book that essentially Dogen has an audience of both lay people and monas- monks, monastics.
1: Right, right,
2: and 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 that's really interesting to me because, um, like, uh, also in the book you bring in the uh, the, I think it's the Hwanyan tradition. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, the, uh, you know, many years ago, the friend that Stuart mentioned earlier, who, who had been a, a Korean Chogye Zen monk for a number of years, is now a Quaker. Um, was someone who actually, he's getting into Shinto now. <laughs> I should mention. But um, in any event, uh, he created something called the Sutra Salon. And so I and a bunch of other people, um, for about a dozen years, read through most English translations of most of the major Mahayana sutras, as well as um, the Pali um, suttas as well. And so I've I read the, the Avatamsaka, the flower garland. Sutra and and you bring weave that into your book about about Dogen and I had no idea that that was sort of a uh, an inspiration and source material to me. Reading the English translation I read of the Flower Garland Sutra, it's it's like this LSD trip.
1: Oh yeah, it goes on and
2: on and on and on and on. And I'm, I'm just intrigued to know, I'm, I, I can't imagine the monastics would have known it, pres- presumably, or at least some of them would have, but not, the, not the, um, the lay people, I'm guessing. Can you talk about how Dogen threaded his way between these two audiences that would have had different, presumably would have had different educations? Because I think that's interesting.
1: You know, I'm going to say another thing about uh, Dogen that's kind of sacrilegious in the in the Soto world. I wonder how much people understood, even when they were sitting in the same room with him, because it was really tough. And that's and his Shobogenzo. For that reason, after he died, there were a couple of commentaries, and people tried to understand, but they did put it on the shelf yeah. <laughs> because even back in the day, it was it was tough going. So uh, it was okay. only about yeah. uh, last couple of centuries that people rediscovered this and it's and, and it's uh people have started to really dig Dogen but uh the thing about Dogen you know the Mahayana and the sutras they're already wild the Mahayana the Lotus Sutra which he worked for man this is someone trying to express the the buddhist teachings with special effects you know they're sitting yes. on a mountain and there are divas coming and there everybody is as far as you can see there are buddhas upon buddhas and countless bodhisattvas with incredible names and they're all sitting up there and they're giving these wild teachings and then dogan takes it and he even wilds it even more so right. even if you you read dogan it still takes some explaining okay. what this is fair, fair now, enough he, The thing about the Yen is, one of the things you got to explain is, okay, according to Dogen, time does not just flow from the past to the present to the future. The future flows into the past and is perfectly contained in every moment. As if you said the top of the river flows into the bottom, but the bottom of the river is also unflowing into the top. And every drop of water of the river contains the entire river. That's basic Mahayana 101 doctrine. But you got to understand what that means, and then you can see what Dogen was doing with his thing, his uh, ideas of what he called being time, like that. Yeah.
0: So, so you wanted you you mentioned that uh, you wanted to talk about uh, shikantaza and um, uh, this is probably a good time yeah, to get so what because the, the, one that. of the things when I when I look at the book, you know, the 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 first sort of anchor point with Dogen is the discussion of shikantaza zazen the primacy of that practice. So maybe uh, you could uh, riff on that for a little bit here.
1: Right, I'm not claiming to have the definitive definition of meditation or Zazen or even Shikantaza. I'm just, of course, speaking as all teachers do of of how I approach it and as I understand it. Um, But here's the thing that, as I see, makes it kind of unique. It is radically not trying to obtain anything and putting down the entire hunger and thirst to attain. It is radical equanimity, radical sitting in just what is, in which the sitting itself is the goal and fruition of sitting. Because human beings, we get up in the morning and we immediately got things we want to do, got places we got to go. And got uh, the things we judge. I like this, I don't like that, and this I, I have mixed feelings about. And when we sit shikantaza, it is the opposite. There is no place to go except that cushion for the time of sitting. There is nothing lacking and nothing more to do except sit there. And the experience itself, by definition, is complete and whole. And people don't know how to do that. My, I got a garden here, a Japanese garden, there's rocks outside. The rocks sit, they don't complain. I got a mountain here. I'm looking out my window. We have our local mountain. The mountain doesn't compare itself to the other mountain next door. That's a little bigger. It's people who need to go and do and judge. And Shikantaza is sitting in which nothing to judge, no other place to go. It is perfectly sitting there. Okay. That's
0: it. <laughs> it's, I mean, if you even relate with Dogen making, um, Uh, a more radical statement which is it's not just you sitting it's the Buddha sitting it's all the Buddha sitting it it is it is the The whole universe it it is enlightenment happening that's it
1: the whole universe is sitting on that Zafu with nothing to add and not one drop to take away during the time you're sitting I always I often say during the time you're sitting because of course when the bell rings we get up and we got to get back to the world of places to go and people to see and people we like and things we don't like. And our practice is to fit the two views together. How can we sit in, say everything is just completely what it is and then get back to a world where, boy, we got some problems out there. We got to deal with, you know, I, I was in the cancer bed. I said three years ago and, and I experimented with going between the two at the one part of me was afraid and I didn't want to be in the hospital. And I was worried about what my family was going to become without me. All Everything you would imagine. I'm a Zen teacher. And I admit, hey, sometimes, man, it was freaking me out. I, I was really sick. The other time I would lie in the bed. It was, I wouldn't be anywhere else. It was perfect. This is where life had me. There was, the whole universe was in the bed with me. I wouldn't change a thing. Now, how do we fit the two views together? This is our practice. And you know what? I'm, I'm convinced they're both true. Somehow there's nothing about this realm of life universe that is anywhere lacking. And yet, boy, we got some things we got to fix. So I took my surgery and I got better. And I just had my check this week and I went to the Japanese doctor and he stuck a camera down my nose. I had... Uh, Uh, stomach cancer. And he looked down there and uh, he, Japanese doctors are very scary. He looked down there and he went, "Mm, mm." I said, what, what did you find? "Mm, No, you're okay. And then he said in Japanese, no, you're okay. It's the best. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best news.
2: Congratulations. I'm glad to hear it. Thank
0: you. Thank you. So, but you, you also say that the, the sitting, even, even if, you know, it's not like the, the goal is to be perfect and uh, not to have uh, any thoughts or anything like that. It's, it's, no, that, no. that that it is the relationship to all that material, even, even if going mind or judging mind appears, it's your relationship that's shifting to that. You're not repressing exactly. that.
1: Exactly, you know. I we compare it to the clear, open, blue sky with not a cloud in it. This is people think that a mind without thoughts and just boundless and open. And people think my meditation. I have to get there to this open, bound, clear mind. And if the clouds come, or even a rainy, stormy day when we have upset, that's bad. That's an obstruction. But in our practice, we learn after a while that. The sun is always shining, seen or unseen. The sky is always present, even as the clouds. So we learn not to grab the thoughts, not to stir up the thoughts, not to buy into their bull. Uh, Are we on, can I say the... Uh, no, I no, that? no I you
0: can't. Well, you, you can for the podcast.
2: But you, he's going to have to delete it. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> the, B, the BS. Because the, because yes, the, wait, the, pod, yes,
2: the podcast is okay, but this is also going on a, radio, a show local too. radio show.
1: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought we were on HBO. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only. So, uh, okay, bleep me out. Uh, but anyway, we, we learned that the, the stuff of life. Mm -hmm. The problems of life are there and the clarity is there at the same time, because on the Zafu, we practice this total acceptance and non-resistance. And then we get back to a life of uh, things, boy, we have to resist and we don't like sometimes. So uh, one is not an obstruction there. We say form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. They're just two faces of the same thing.
0: And yet, like, there is a there is a doing in in a sense, or or maybe it's a not doing is is probably a more accurate way to say it. Because if I have a thought that arises, there is an invitation to dig in and ramify and, and uh, yes. uh, uh, water the seed and watch the, everything kind of uh, expand from that. Yeah. So we have to have a certain kind of
1: you don't thought. So don't
0: not grab grabbing.
1: The you don't jump on the train. You don't buy what it's selling. You don't stir it up. You don't wallow in it. You observe it like a, an object, like the the table in the room. Oh, I'm having a, a thought of anger or fear. It's just like the the, the picture on the wall over there. It's just so, a thing. You don't have to think about it.
0: So you would say that that's part of the practice?
1: You, Of course, it's part of the practice. You just let it be like you're watching theater. Mm-hmm. Usually when we we feel, for example, fear, we say, I'm afraid, but in Buddhist practice, uh, you can say, no, I'm temporarily feeling in my mind theater, uh, a scene of fear like that. It it somehow is just what's going on in the show and you don't have to buy into it.
0: Yeah. So, So that place behind the theater Uh, that, that sitting place then is, is, is what would we call that original mind? Would we call that the way things are? Is that a reality? How do you, how do you describe that?
1: I think if you look at the history of Buddhism and and other Eastern practices, there are kind of uh, two schools on this. One is that there's something messed up about this world. We got to get out of here. We got to get out of Dodge. We got to put our thinking down and we got to get to the place without thought that's perfectly clear. And then there are the Mahayana people and maybe the more earthy uh, Zen and, and Japanese people who said, yeah, this world of chaos, samsara, is bad if you 're only in here and buy into it, but you can get to the point where you realize that Nirvana is samsara samsara is nirvana, and it 's a good show if you realize it 's a show if you don 't buy into the into everything it 's selling so I, I think we can learn to say that you know this life is. I don't think this is something we have to get out of. I think like a lot of Zen people, we can be realized right here amidst all the nonsense and chaos and ugliness and of this world together with the beauty and the, and the peace and the good stuff. If you learn to say that we're here and we're living this life, but we also see beyond it as well. They're not, they're two faces of the same thing.
2: That's my personal. You just, you just use the word beyond and, um, we had a, a, a conversation with a couple of friends um, earlier this morning. And one one friend uh, was relating how um, a, Zen, a Zen teacher here in America, uh, he said eight or 10 years ago, had decided to um, sort of redo a translation of the Heart Sutra in English. And he wanted to uh, get rid of, gate gate parasam gate bodhisvaha and translate this it This
1: wasn't me. <laughs> well, I don't think I so. Go ahead, really? Finish your finish your story. So Sorry, so he ahead. said
2: so so he wanted to get rid of beyond. You just used were the the word beyond. Yeah. And, yeah. No, and that was a,
1: a bad word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because it's it, it's uh They are exactly the same scene. I like to say that we see life one way out of the right eye, which is the world of division and separation and Mm -hmm. me and you, friend and enemy, life and death. And then we see out of our left eye, which is beyond coming and going, beyond life and death, beyond separation, beyond the things uh, that we love and the things we detest. And then we open both eyes together and we're still seeing the same world, but it looks completely different, but yet it's the same.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's... I think that's uh, so
1: beyond was a, is a bad word, yes.
0: So so in the, in the sense of you're not going beyond the world uh, in that sense, uh, uh, but transcendence is understood to be the uh, uh, fusing of these two perspectives. Imminence
1: is transcendence and transcendence is imminence. Like
0: okay. Okay. So maybe it was you. I'll I we'll have to, I don't have to ask my <laughs> friend. I,
1: I don't like Durrani. I'm a big guy, I'm a Buddhist avowed Buddhist modernist. Okay. With the the asterisk that if I think something is superstition doesn't mean it's not valuable to someone else. And I mm-hmm. could be wrong. So for mm-hmm. example, a lot of Buddhists thought the world was flat. I do not believe the world is flat. Uh, I'm not a literalist on rebirth, but if someone else is, my that's wonderful for them. And they maybe they're right and I'm wrong. But I believe certain things. I don't believe in Durrani. Durrani are the chants we, we still do in many Buddhist traditions that I consider to be a bit abracadabra magic spells. Because people were chanting the Durrani to get it to rain or to cure their kid who was sick. Mm-hmm. which is a wonderful thing, and it's a human need. The farmer wants it to rain, he's afraid, but the Durani 's not going to do anything. It's just a mumbo-jumbo. Uh, I, I made a, a joke. You go grab something from a Harry Potter book and say that. It'll have the same effect. So <laughs> at the end of the Heart Sutra, there is uh, a mantra, which is uh, basically like a Durrani. And I said, uh, people chanted for the power of that, like the magic power. And I said, no, we have to understand it. So I did put it in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still chanted in in uh, the original, uh, but uh, I put next to it the probable meaning.
2: And what is the probable meaning, since we're since we're talking about
1: that? Well, this is another Go- Dogen perspective. Good. That's uh, unusual. We usually think gone to the other shore. We need to get to the other shore. And then we Mm -hmm. have the raft that we're carrying. And when we get there, we put the raft down. And Dogen said, you never put the raft down because you never really pick it up. But you're always riding the raft because the other shore is this shore is the middle of the river. Keep rowing. So the place, the destination is right here and now how you choose and live. If you see the world with wisdom, you're bringing Buddha to life and enlightenment now, and the other shore is here. And if you act with ignorance, like greed, anger, and ignorance, you're bringing the opposite here, and you're making division. So if you practice, he called a continuous practice or practice enlightenment. If your practice is right now, it's not to get someplace, it's realized right here. So we don't say gone, gone to the other shore. I think our translation, I haven't uh, looked, uh, I have to remember my own words, but it's something like um, uh, gone, gone, but we got there. <laughs> something like
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, oh, I appreciate the, uh, the the explanation of that because as as I get from the book, I mean, the focus on uh, uh, Shinkantaza and Zazen, the sitting is, is like, Practices in this moment, practices right here. There's no other place to go. There's no other, otherness, other places here, there, past, present. All as you describe in the later chapters are all things that Dogen riffs with and turns around and fuses back together, uh, much like you described the Picasso painting. And it's for the mind that wants references and uh, a, a very clear map. Uh, it 's very frustrating because yes, you just you 're yes. basically just brought back to free fall i mean literally it 's like a sense of free fall that uh you 're here there 's nothing to hold on to uh that ultimately has any uh, substance, and yet well. here we are.
1: Well, it's also very practical in, in daily life, too. Uh, for example, let's say uh, you meet a situation that's difficult or frustrating and you have, you're at a crossroads how you can deal with it. You can either react with anger and frustration or you can react with peace, acceptance, tolerance. And uh, the, the story I usually give, uh, which is easy to understand, I had a flat tire in almost exactly the same spot in the car on a rainy day about 10 years apart. And the first time I was late and I got mad. It's raining. I got to change the tire. I remember kicking the tire and hurting my foot. I had just started <laughs> you know, practicing a couple of years before. I was still in my lawyer mode, I guess, and really frustrated. So I, I, and I, I changed the tire and I got soaking wet and I was miserable for the rest of the day of the injustice of it all. Uh, 10 years later, I have almost the same experience and it's raining and I got a flat tire and I'm late and I'm getting soaking wet. And I got out of the car and I looked up and I said, ah, the rain. Yes. Beautiful tire. And I bow to the tire. Thank you. Now I still have to change the tire and I'm still soaking wet, but it made all the difference in the world. In one I we would say in our practice that a little bit, I brought the heart of Buddha alive right there. And in the first one I brought Ignorance, division, anger, and samsara, right? The circumstance was the circumstance. So our practice of practice enlightenment is in life. If you, if you find yourself going in the good way, then you know it's the most practical uh, practice that you realize in your life because your life starts going in that direction. If you're still angry and punching and frustrated and jealous, you know it's not working for you. So it's not only uh, abstract. It's something you can see in your life.
0: Would you say that the practice itself cultivates that spaciousness? So because to be able to do what you just described with the tire seems to be like there's a lot of space in there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my wife, my wife will tell you that maybe I, I still have a little way to go.
0: <laughs> that, that's the beauty. It's always,
2: it's always the spouse that knows the uh, the the, yeah, uh, yeah. the distance to go.
1: We don't. We tend, you know, even when you read Dogen, sometimes you read uh, Shobogenzo, and you could tell he was having a bad hair day. If he had hair, he didn't have hair, but you could tell he got up on the wrong side of the tatami mat that morning because he sounded like something was bothering him, and he was a little short. We, I do not believe that Buddhism makes us perfect individuals. Um, And I, 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 another thing I get on that causes some controversy in the Buddhist world, I said, if you went back in time and met a lot of the Buddhist ancestors, including this is really controversial, including the Buddha himself. Mm -hmm. And you actually Mm -hmm. met him. He might turn out to be a little more human and have his moments and deal with things in his own way. Maybe his own biases and his own little (laughs) bad habits. Nothing wrong with it. We do not expect to turn into robots from this practice. But to the extent that I can meet my sickness or meet my flat tire or meet whatever it is in a good way, then it makes us better. And we do bring Buddha to life. But the next minute I could fall in a bad direction and lose it. Well, life I, is, is, it's not fixed.
2: I, I And I take your point about the Buddha, for example, because after all, um with much persuasion from ananda and his uh, you know his mother his aunt who was his mother etc., he did change his mind about yep. um uh, allowing women to to become part of the sangha you know and yep. uh, become yep. nuns and and that's um uh, I, I actually appreciate that that's in in the scriptures you know, because it, because I think there is a tendency, or and has been a, a human tendency, to um, lionize people after they're gone, and can't complain that you're that you're making them too too perfect.
1: I, I believe the word is uh, ha, I always pronounce it this wrong. Hagiography. Yes, yes, hey, uh, yeah. th- th- that, that I
2: was trying to remember that word and it didn't come to my head, but yes
1: the scrubbing up and dipping in gold of our saints and heroes. We do it to mm-hmm. George Washington. We do it uh, to whoever our spiritual hero is. And that's wonderful. We don't want to remember all their blemishes, but sometimes it's important to remember. I think that they, they were human and they did have blemishes and they, don't get me wrong. They're probably wonderful, wonderful, beautiful human beings who really had something to teach, but I don't expect a statue or, or uh, uh, someone who's uh, always got the right answer to every question. I want someone who uh like me also- often has to scratch scratch their head or 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 just uh deal with things that we're not uh you know maybe we 're not always beautiful every day but we're we 're right. getting uh more beautiful every day but not there yet
2: <laughs> got it so um so this 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 capacity to hold apparent contradictions. Simultaneously, hmm. is very is very important. It's important. It's important in our tradition. It's important in in pretty much any any spiritual tradition if I think about it a, a bit. But it's something that really comes through in your book, The Zen Master's Dance, about Dogen. So, um, and it's not just and it's not just the ideas. It's also. the 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 embodied presence and maybe you could talk about that
1: yeah well his was a a very uh, physical practice too Mm -hmm. and he was a very intellectual guy but it's also very physical one of the reasons I call it the dance I said my sister was a a dancer and she tells a wonderful story that kind of summarizes Dogen in the easiest way I ever know how if I may Mm -hmm. tell you about my sister she uh has been dancing for, she's 80 years old. She still teaches dance. She's been dancing for years. She was a Bob Fosse dancer on Broadway. (laughs) She knows her stuff. She, I got two left feet, not my sister, Sue, but I asked her one day, I said, so Sue, you're on stage. What happens when you're supposed to make a graceful leap and you trip over and stumble or your partner picks you up and drops you right on your keister? What happens to the dance when everything goes wrong? And she says, nothing ever goes wrong. It becomes the dance. You dance from there. And uh, she said uh, a couple of times they they actually had to carry her off the stage once in a stretcher, you know, (laughs) to get her off. And she said, even when they stopped the show and had to carry me off the stage, it's the dance. The dance sweeps it all in. It sweeps in the good. It sweeps in the bad. It sweeps in the happy and the sad. It sweeps in the graceful moments. And when you fall on your keister, but, but, and this is the part that's like Dogen, we do our best to diligently not fall on our keister. (laughs) (laughs) That's practice.
0: That's that's very uh, succinct.
2: Well, I appreciate that. In, that, in, in a sense, uh, your story makes me uh, invites me to think of um, practice as a performance, as a dance performance, yes. and yes. and uh, not that you're not that you're performing for someone else, but you're performing for 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 yourself in connection with all other parts of the universe.
1: The the monastic uh, life is uh, rituals from morning till night. And Dogen had his, and they're all dances. There's a a certain dance of how to cook and a certain dance of how to sit and a certain dance of how to go to the bathroom and Mm -hmm. a certain dance of how to put your robes on. Ritual after ritual after ritual. But the thing is, outside the monastery, from a bigger sense, our whole life is, is kind of a great dance. This whole world is a great dance. And we can make little rituals. Uh, we can see that changing the baby diaper is not just changing the diaper. It's a sacred thing. It's a, I, I used to change my son's diaper. First, I'd bow to the baby and the and the, and the poop. And then mm-hmm. I'd change the diaper. And then I'd bow again. It, it really is, uh, anything can be seen as a kind of a sacred moment, according to Dogan. He left nothing out. Everything from morning to night even the most mundane, the things we love and the things we hate, taking out the trash or the rusty tin can on the road, all sacred to Dogen. Well,
2: my, you, you remind me of a, of a moment when my um, mother was dying of cancer. My father and I, uh, she, she was at home. She wanted to die at home. Uh, we took her to the bathroom. She had to go to the bathroom. I'm sort of behind her. My father's sort of in front of her trying to lift her off the toilet. And and she could, didn't have the strength to wipe herself, so um, so I started to uh, reach out, and she she was like, resist, no, 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 you you shouldn't do that. And I said, you did this for me hundreds of times, hundreds, thousands of times, right. and then she right. could then she could re- then she could accept that with grace. Right. But um, but yeah, that that was a sacred moment for me
0: yeah and you you and you, the, you touch on this whole the 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 sacredness of death as well in the book
1: the sacredness of death but Dogen would tell us that the even the most mundane if we have the eye to 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 feel it and again this is where it's between our ears to to decide mm-hmm. this um opening a bag of bread is sacred the whole universe has brought this bread to, to go in your mouth uh getting the oil changed on your car well what's sacred what's buddhist about that the the whole universe is in the oil of your car there are millions of dinosaurs in that oil i mean it's all of history and time is here in your buick i, I know that doesn't sound like the most profound thing people don't want to think that my uh, getting my oil changed at the garage is a is a, a the buddha a buddhist ritual but it is if if you experience it so now we don't have to experience everything 24 hours like that, but any time you can stop and breathe and look and go, whoa, oh, man, everything, all all of it's pouring into this moment. No matter what you're doing. Well, especially
2: yeah, it's especially in the relationships because when you go to get your oil changed, you're dealing with human beings, yeah. and yes. and they and they are um, at least potentially as sacred as anything could be. And and so if we treat them in that way as best we can, then then, then your point applies.
1: Uh, let, let's make that our theme today. Everyone, please be kind to your mechanics. Exactly. And if they, over, if, if they overcharge you, protest, but keep a calm heart. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, the, the metaphor that you used... It may not even be, I mean, it may even be more than a metaphor. It's very specific about the the one eye, you know, sees the world of division and sees the world of forms and the other eye sees the world, quote unquote, beyond, but it's really seeing the world of whole and everything together. Right. Uh, right. In one sense, there's a, I've heard it said with Zen practice that there's the learning of the teachings, but then the, the, the real fermentation is, is bringing it into the heart. Right. And I hear you, I hear you I'm, you're speaking from that place. I'm interested in how you articulate that with respect to uh, Dogen's mes- uh, message and presentation.
1: When we're sitting, there is no other practice and nothing more to do but sitting. Sitting is the only thing you need to do, the only place you need to be while sitting. Then when you get up and you get back to this world of difficulties and win and lose and me and you and the things that scare us and that, what the crazy politicians are doing in the newspaper, and there's a lot of this world that we need to fix and a lot that's very dissatisfying, our practice is to find how the two fit together and we can Uh, you said that one of the secrets to zen koans is (laughs) people say you're not supposed to talk about koans but there are some things you can say seeing the world two seemingly opposite and conflicting ways at once so on the one hand there is absolutely no need to judge right and wrong good and bad we see total wholeness and equanimity And we have a world of right and wrong and things and problems. You can hold both views at the same time in your heart. You can see the world at the same time. So going back to my cancer bed again, part of me was miserable and wanted to get out and needed to fix this problem. On the other hand, there's nothing to fix. And I don't need to go anywhere else. And it wasn't like I I flipped always from one view to the other. I truly could have both feelings at once. And it changed everything. So I still fixed the problem. And I still was kind of miserable. And I still was a little worried, a lot of worried. And I was also not worried at all. Mm -hmm. It's a strange thing. But this is our Zen practice.
2: It's interesting. Uh, So... You know, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, but have been very strongly influenced by Buddhism. And um, uh, my husband, Stuart, who you're who you're talking to now and um, with me, is um, someone who uh, we were on a, a trip in Italy and staying in a rural area, and uh, eventually he had an operation. Which they, you know, the doctor said that he could, he, he, he wasn't sure if he was going to survive it. And in the days before that operation, I was sitting in this beautiful um, uh, plaza outside the house we were staying in. And I had happened to bring, I, for some reason, I had made the decision to bring several books, one of, one, one of which was Moon and a Dewdrop. Which is a translation Mm. of, uh, into English of, of some Dogen pieces. And I can't tell you how, how, uh, poignant it was to be reading Dogen while my loved one was, was sitting, you know, was, was a few meters away, um, experiencing an illness that we weren't sure he was going to recover from.
1: I, I'm I'm very glad uh, he did uh, recover. But uh, part of the dance is we accept the times of sickness and we accept the times of health. The Buddha, you know, felt dissatisfaction in the face of old age, sickness, and death. And people say that's suffering, old age, sickness, and death. And I say, no, that is not the Buddhist definition of dukkha, suffering. It's suffering when you get old and sick and you resist and don't want to be old and sick so we say when you're old just be old when you're sick just be sick when you're young just be young which is a lesson too for a lot of people and when you're healthy just be healthy um and at the same time boy who wants to be sick nobody wants to be sick so it's uh, all true it's all true
0: yeah and your story about uh uh your time in the cancer ward you know for me in the hospital in italy um uh, that Rob was describing was actually very. Um, uh, it resonates quite a bit because it was all there.
2: And 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 by the way, I'll just say that it, you you weave it into the book, both the first mention of being in the hospital with cancer and then your resolution of that, uh, quite skillfully in a way that doesn't bring undue attention to yourself, but um, illustrates the the points you're making in the yeah. book. So I, I just want to commend you for that because I, 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 um, I'm sensitive to that sort of thing and you did it really well.
1: Well, if this practice is not about the hard times, I don't, I'm one of the people who say, don't turn this into a, a kind of psychotherapy. I don't uh, think yeah. the Buddhists is, it's about who we are in the universe. Mm-hmm. It is about <laughs> not who we are in the universe, who we are as a whole kit and kaboom. That's,
0: that's nice put. But if it
1: doesn't, if it doesn't have practical, uh, application when uh, life gets, uh, when the rubber hits the road of life, then it, what's the point?
0: Uh, so we have, uh, just about uh, a little less than 20 minutes left in our time. So I, I, we have to get into the Zen of the future.
1: Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, this, boy, this is uh, so, that's, uh have... so,
2: so we'll just, I, I just want to, uh, for listeners, um, this is the book that you're working on now, right? That's it's the, the that's the after title of the
1: book I'm working on now.
2: Oh, oh, oh darn it. <laughs> it's, it's,
0: it's the zen oh, book. You're it's slipping zen one in the on it's us a here. Zen book of the future. Yeah. Clearly no, it's happening I, I, right now.
1: I, I showed it to my editor and he said, no, it's very good. It's going to wait until the future. <laughs> so uh, He said, it's a, a little ahead of its time now, which I, I, it might be because uh, it's, it's, when i've told the ideas to people i have to be very careful about it because it still can be very upsetting so i'm going to uh, explain express it very carefully now okay okay in some ways i think that buddhism for 2500 years has failed on its mission but perhaps now is a real chance to bring some of that mission to life. Now, what I mean—it's failed on its mission. I mean that if the if the purpose of Buddhism was to enlighten, enlighten all the sentient beings and really help them realize, well, we've we've helped a lot of people, but I'm looking around the world, and it seems not just Buddhism, all the religions and all the philosophers so far have not helped us really to solve all our problems. But there is a chance now that we can do some things to, if not solve these problems, make them better. And I'm talking about some of our worst instincts, literally our worst instincts. We are animals raised in the jungle by uh, kill or be killed. And uh, we're still warriors. And now we're trying to be civilized people. And as you can tell, it doesn't work all so well. Sometimes the animal and the... uh, The warrior still comes out in us and uh, we're at a state now that we could blow up the world. If we're not careful, we're still uh, raping and pillaging sometimes as human beings. And also we're decimating the oceans with our greed. We don't know when to stop consuming. Okay. Mm -hmm. These are the big problems. And people say, well, let's keep preaching and just waving our finger and carrying signs and we're going to solve this problem. And I say, no, you're not going to solve this problem until you make some changes until how the human being works and what they want and their basic instincts and drives. So what is that? This is the part that's controversial. We do have a chance now to make some minor, and I got to put this again, minor alterations to some aspects of the human being So that our worst instincts are moderated. For example, most people live peacefully and they get angry, but they don't pick up a stone and hit somebody in anger. We have some people who cannot control themselves and hit someone in anger, and that's murder. But most people are not murderers. They control themselves. So there is something different about these people who seem to not have self-control. Or there are child abusers who cannot control themselves. I, I was a volunteer in a prison for um, teaching Zen for a while, and I met this this man who was the gentlest, most sweet. He was a photographer. He was an artist, and I found out he was also a child rapist. So I looked at them, and he, you would speak to him, and he would say, uh, "They want to leave me out. They want to let me out of prison." And I'm telling the parole board, "Don't let me out. I cannot control myself." And most of the time. He seemed to be a very beautiful person who has this incredibly horrible, ugly side. There's something about him. So if we could, for example, instead of sending people to prison, have a device which is already within reach of medical science to place in the human body, And when someone with the inclination, for example, to rape or child abuse, starts to get these sensations, there would be an electrical or chemical release that would remove that drive from them. They would just not feel the desire to do the harm they do. You know what? Not only would they not have to go to prison, maybe they have to go and still do make repents for for some bad they did in the past but if you offered people a medical cure for their instincts of violence how many children could walk the streets at night and would not be abused i have a daughter who walks three blocks here to the school and every morning i kind of hope well i hope in the three blocks she's walking to the school by herself everything's fine we would save so much harm in this world if we made some small changes to the DNA, perhaps we would not be as greedy. We would not be as violent in our worst instincts. And when I say this, this is the part people gets upset. No, 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 we mu- it's eugenics. We must not do anything to the brain or the, the, the genetic side of us. And I say, look, don't say genetics to me I'm from Jewish background. I had people who died in uh, the camps who were uh, not within my family. I take that word very seriously. I am talking about minor, minor changes. As you can see with the, the COVID vaccine, they already – we have the ability with CRISPR and various technologies now yeah. to make some small changes to the genetic code. If we could make people less angry, slightly less covetous, more easily satisfied – less prone to uncontrolled violence how would this world be would it be perfect no would it be the pure land uh, where everyone is on lotus leaves and we're in paradise probably not but boy it will be a nice place it will be a much nicer place than it is that's my controversial zen of the future that we got to bring a little technology to realize our buddhist goals (laughs)
2: I can see why that's going to be controversial. I
0: I can see why it could be controversial. And,
2: uh, and, and, you know, I I can see people arguing about unintended consequences as well. And that would be the tricky part.
1: It has to be treated like any medical procedure, like the vaccine we're seeing. It has to be Mm -hmm. tested. You can't just like go willy nilly changing genes on people. Right it ha- you know we have to it has to be done through the scientific method, but if we could treat some behavior as a disease as opposed mm-hmm. to just something we we have to preach to somebody, don't do that try not to to hurt people look i want to- so- I'm a lawyer, I want to solve crime, and the prison system isn't doing it
0: right, but well, I, th- I think that where I find conversations like this happening when people Uh, even rationalists look at um, free will and the, and the lack of free will, you know, they, they, you know, there, there's a line of thought that says free will is illusory because, uh, you know, their model of the world is a very deterministic one. But when you look at criminals, like you're describing, you know, they're victims of uh, a lot of different factors. They could be factors of how they were raised. It could be factors of biological conditions and things like that. And, so, certainly it's not controversial to say that our prison system, our penal system our just system of justice should be imbued with compassion and that's what that's what I hear you saying out of this it's not I don't hear eugenics so much as saying that there there's a compassionate response to recognize that people by their nature aren't intending to do evil necessarily, but there's causes and conditions, and so if we can mitigate those causes and conditions to make possible for someone a quality of life that uh, isn't governed quite so mechanically, is that a bad thing?
1: I I want to spare mostly the children and the other victims of this, but I also want to spare the people who are tossed into prison and that's the end. That's our answer to it. Uh, but you know uh, there's another factor to this do i think this is the best solution or what i would ideally wish no but you know the technology is here and it's going to be used by corporations to sell us tennis shoes right it's going to be used by dictators to control their population i know it's dystopian and i I, i'm sorry to, to to bring this down we as buddhists have to get out in the front of this technology that is here, whether we like it or not, and say before governments use it to build, they're going to build super soldiers, you know, who can stay up all night and with six arms to hold a gun in each hand, you know? And we we have to say before they use this technology for capitalism and and, uh, the military industrial complex, we as Buddhists should get in front and say, well, if the technology is going to be here anyway, let's use it carefully and let's use it for good. Uh, it's not too early to start talking about it because as uh, the vaccine shows, we're right around the corner from all this. Yeah.
0: Well, it's also interesting that the, one of the biggest challenges we face in our current epoch is the attention economy and how we have developed all these systems that are uh, relentless about taking our attention and directing our attention in certain ways. And and so then the question is, what's what is a good Buddhist response to that? I mean, at one level, you can point out the problem and have practices that help us strengthen our attention. But are there ways to use the technology to do something different with attention?
1: I, I heard you talk about this in some of the uh, interviews I was listening to last few weeks. This, you, you like to raise this a lot. And I'm going to talk about my 18 year old back in the, the other room. I'm convinced that the device has just become part of him. I think he he has a full world in there and a full life, and he is relating to people. Maybe not as we did, but he has a rich existence in that phone and on that computer. And uh, I, I see signs. He has friends, and he sees them in person. But somehow it's now wired into his brain. I mean, I, I'm, I'm literally the guy when they came out with the new gas pumps, I had to turn to him to show me how to pump the gas because it was And he said, no, it's a game, dad, but he's got the gas flowing. And I'm saying, what happened? Do you put the where do you put the which button do you push? I didn't know. He's just their brains are wired differently. Maybe like our generation was when TV came out and our folks couldn't understand what we uh, could see in the TV. But that TV world is real to us. Yeah. And, it's, and it didn't ruin us, I don't think. Uh, we still have friends and a life, uh, and we also watch TV. So uh, maybe there's hope here, too. Maybe it's a, a different kind of attention. I'm not sure.
0: Well, it's, uh, I mean, and in terms of what we've been talking about earlier, it doesn't change the, uh, uh, the challenge for our perspective that just to be completely present in this, in this moment Regardless of whether I have an iPhone in front of me.
1: If people only know the phone and the TV, and they only know running around in their life to get stuff and buy stuff, they're missing all of it. That's why it's so difficult for people to do what we do in Zen, which is sit and stare at a wall. People say, oh, I can do that. They can't. They can't. It's just their, their head is filled with stuff. They say, oh, I got to check my email. Uh, they're, they're thinking about what they're going to have for lunch and what they're going to buy that day. It's the toughest thing to tell people to sit still and stop for a while. So you're right. If they, my son only does the phone or people only are, are consumed with the modern life, they're missing something. We have to learn to stop at least a little bit every day.
2: Well, this is interesting because i'm, I'm one it, it raises the question for me you know we were talking about your your online sangha uh, earlier, and so i'm wondering when you're when you're sitting together online as I understand you to be doing i mean is there um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of, of the guy in the in the classic Zen hall who wrote, goes around and wraps somebody on the shoulder if they're if they slump over or are falling oh. asleep or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm wondering if uh, if there's a uh, if if there's um, a more a, a gentler online way to sort of nudge someone if they're uh, slumping over or whatever.
1: Yeah, we, we were joking like we could have a uh, a stick we we plug into the USB cable. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, we had the we had some workarounds. For example, I can't adjust someone's posture, which is very difficult to do at a distance, mm-hmm. and especially because people have different bodies. So the workaround we ca- we came up with is actually kind of better, if you ask me. And I and that was you know your own body, and if you're sitting. And you can sit for a good time and it feels balanced and it feels stable and you can forget about it. You know, it doesn't your body just can stay like that. And it's not obsessing you because it feels right. It's probably right. So know yourself. Mm. And that seems to work better than all I can do. I can't read someone's what they're actually feeling inside. So I can poke in their, their spine and try to straighten their chin. But everyone is a different size and one suit, one size does not fit all. So it was easier for people to learn to adjust their own posture. But Very anyway, anyway, you know, well, we're we- the most boring netcast because we turn on the camera and then people just sit and they don't say anything. We we had a couple of cases. We had a, a, a Zoom bomber that came in years ago. And finally. couldn't figure out what we were doing. He was yelling at us and trying to get our attention. Nobody moved, <laughs> which I was very proud of. Nobody moved. Nobody cared. He, he was yelling curse words. Nobody. And then that's another great. time, our camera froze. Mm. And because the camera froze, the guy said, I was sitting an hour and 20 minutes. And I noticed then finally the camera had frozen <laughs> because we were just sitting there. You couldn't tell the difference. I could put up a photo. It wouldn't make a difference. So
0: That's very funny. God,
2: that's that's great. Maybe you should just put up a photo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we we are uh, uh at the end of our uh allotted time here but we really Already? want to Yeah, wow. so you see, you I, see I, yeah, you the said 2 hours two, What are we go talk about pretty two quick. Hours? <laughs> it goes by fast. Uh but uh we really really appreciate uh the conversation and Yeah, uh, thank you so much and
2: and and really I've I've learned stuff myself today and so um I'm grateful.
0: And
1: thank you. You, I, I have listened to your podcast in the past, but with 300 and coming up to 350 episodes of about two hours each, I have the next couple of years ahead of me of listening to, boy, you have such a wonderful, amazing podcast here. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Well, we appreciate that. And we look forward thank to you. having uh, uh, future conversations. Uh, yeah. Zen, uh, you're, you're we're going to get fun. you on for Zen of yeah, the future, yeah, if nothing you, else. You, you, <laughs> it's, uh, it's great. So uh, th- thank you again. All right.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Jundo Cohen about his latest book, The Zen Master's Dance, a guide to understanding Dogen and who you are in the universe. In The Zen Master's Dance, Jundo Cohen takes us deep into the mind of Master Dogen and shows us how to join in The Great and Intimate Dance of the Universe. Through fresh translations and sparkling teaching, Cohen opens up for us a new way to read one of Buddhism's most remarkable spiritual geniuses. In addition to his book, we discuss at length the benefits and opportunities in maintaining a largely online Sangha tradition. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we present a pre-recorded conversation in which Tibetan teacher Ken MacLeod and Minnie Rivers Books and Tea co-founder Jim Wilson returned to continue our discussion from several weeks ago. In this installment, we go deep on the question of allegorical thinking and the Western mind's difficulty with allegory. Only here will you find the subjects of Star Wars, the Borg from Star Trek, Game of Thrones, the function of feeling in allegorical mentation, abiding peace as a consequence of deep practice, and the challenge of describing Tibetan deity practice to Western minds all weaved together in an engaging conversational quartet. Tune in for that show on Saturday, April 3rd at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.